Ezra chapter 5, just going to read a couple of verses. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Let's pray that prayer, we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the t-shirt that says, you know, how can I miss you if you won't go away? Um, there's some wisdom there, so this is why we were on vacation uh, the last couple of weeks. Um, maybe it even allowed some of you to miss us by now. I don't know that for sure, um, but I'm thankful to Michael and David for filling in. It was a treat last week to sit with my family. That doesn't get to happen. And to wear shorts on a Sunday, that really never happens anymore, so that's good too. Um, Phil correctly observed last week that I, I spent my vacation preaching about a dozen sermons because what better way for a pastor to unwind. Um, but I serve every year as a chaplain in Cape May, and it's great, and I was blessed with a very sweet little group of ladies. It's kind of like having your own mini congregation for just the week, and how sweet is this? I, I'm going to tell you this. This has nothing to do with the message, but when I walked into the home, I went up to the desk to, to register, and there was a lady in front of me at the desk checking in, and she, my name was up on the board uh, as being the chaplain for the week, and she said she was so excited to see that I was listed as the chaplain for the week because she was here the same week five years ago when I was preaching here, and at the time I was not even ordained. She knew I was seeking a call, and she said that she had been praying for me and my ministry and that I would find a calling for five years now. <laughs> Which means that this dear woman in South Carolina has been praying for you. You guys are the answer to her steadfast prayers over the last five years, and that's kind of cool. So I thought I'd share that with you. I'm glad I went down, uh, and I think my ministry benefits, and I think you benefit from these sweet ladies. So anyway, that's a picture of God's faithfulness. I wanted to share it with you. And it's a demonstration that God is at work and that he answers the prayers over, over a long time uh, sometimes. And it's, sometimes he answers it even when we don't see it and even when it feels like he's uh, on radio silence. And uh, he, we know that he eventually listens and that he is at work. He is doing things. And that's kind of what we're learning in our story in Ezra. Um, when I was last here, uh, we talked about there were some unfair accusations that were made against the Jews. Uh, their neighbors were out to get them. The local officials uh, from Persia were out to get them. Uh, the Samaritans, uh, and they had all written this lengthy letter to the king of Persia, uh, accusing them of all kinds of, of things, of being rebellious troublemakers with bad intentions. And... Uh, so what had started off with harassment, they are actually asking the king to just cancel the project now. And uh, King Artaxerxes, we were told, had checked the record and said, yes, it is true. These people are rebellious. They're a pain in the neck. And he ordered the project to stop. Uh, and so what was already a painfully slow rebuilding effort ha had come to a screeching halt. And so for years, the temple project sat completely abandoned. There's a gap here between the end of, of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And time goes by, and kings come and go, 
And I imagine that God's people felt very, very disillusioned. And I'm assuming they were still praying, but it feels like nothing's happening, right? Uh, because the longer something sits half done, the harder it is to even imagine it getting finished or getting better. Uh, there's a reason why nobody looks at the Roman Colosseum, for instance. We don't look at that and think like, oh, they're almost done, right? No. We, we know that it's in a state of decay. It's falling apart, right? We call it what it is. It's ruins. Uh, and we've accepted that that's the permanent state of things. And so long before Newton came up with his uh, law that told us that an item at rest tends to stay at rest, uh, the Jews would have sensed that very keenly here, that these projects are getting nowhere. Nothing's happening. Uh, and in fact, what little we started is starting to fall apart because the weeds are growing back and everything like that, right? So we left off with the temple in a state of seemingly permanent rest, as it were. And it would stay that way unless some outside force changed that, according to Newton. Uh, God would need to give his people a nudge. Now, again, I'm assuming that they're, they've been praying, uh, but his, his people would need a pep talk to get going again. And, and in the Old Testament, God does this by means of his prophets. Uh, when God has something to say, he raises up prophets, and they come and they speak on his behalf. And that's what was needed here. This project's not going to get going on the strength of political willpower, it's not going to be the personal charisma of the Jewish leadership. Uh, it's not going to be their strength in numbers, certainly. Uh, and it's not going to be the cultural headwinds, because those are all against them. If things are going to change, it's going to require God speaking into the situation directly. And that's what he does. He, he sends prophets to give his people a much-needed pep talk. And the two who are named here are, are Haggai and Zechariah. Now, wouldn't it be interesting to hear that pep talk? It'd be nice to know what... God said through these men, well, I'm glad you're all curious uh, because we happen to have those records, right? And I was tempted to take a detour and look at those messages, and uh, so I will. Uh, I'm going to twist things around and throw you a curve, and we're going to do a mini-series right now in Haggai. Why? Because Zechariah is 14 chapters long and, frankly, a bit confusing at points. Um, Haggai is all of two chapters and a little easier to follow, so this is me being merciful. You're welcome. Uh, so we'll cover the postcard version of God's wake-up call instead of the book-length version. It's going to give us a nutshell of what God is saying to his people in these days, the proverbial kick in the pants that they need. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn away from Ezra now to the book of Haggai which is on page 791 of the Pew Bibles. So he's going to jump ahead to the minor prophets. Haggai chapter 1 we're going to look at today. I'm calling him Haggai. I know some people say Haggai, but that's just too hard to say. So we're just going to stick with Haggai. All right, Haggai chapter 1, I'm going to read the first 11 verses here. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. It, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, 
and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. All right. So where we left off, again, the building project is completely stopped. It had taken many years to even get started. They've dealt with a lot of undermining, obstructionism, harassment. It's been rough. Uh, Not to mention the day-to-day struggle of rebuilding their lives in their old homeland. They needed to work. They needed to rebuild homes, reestablish farms. They also needed to sustain the daily worship. Uh, So progress had been long, slow, and painful. But what brought it to a stop was a political decision. The king had spoken, and they essentially had to stop, right? And, And no one would be more frustrated than Zerubbabel and and Joshua, Uh, Zerubbabel being the political leader, Joshua was the spiritual leader, and both of them look like failures at this point. Their tenure has not really uh, panned out as they'd hoped. Uh, They were ratted out by their enemies. The accusations were unfair. We said a lot of it was ridiculous, but they had been defeated politically, and for years now they've been licking their wounds. Losing can become a way of life. Remember, I'm a Phillies fan. I was raised in the 80s and 90s. I know of what I speak. (laughs) Last year, I watched three of my teams in Philly climb to the heights and then fall flat on their faces, and each time I kind of expected it. Uh, And I think that it would be impossible for Zerubbabel and Joshua not, at this point, to get used to losing. And, you know, in some ways, losing is easier Uh, Because ironically, there's no letdown if you never get your hopes up, right? Uh, Again, this applies in in, in sports fandom. Like, I feel like I'm less depressed knowing that everything's going to be bad. Uh, But I, you know, I had a good friend even in our youth growing up. He told me that the secret to success, Matt, is to have low expectations. And I thought to myself, he's not wrong, is he? Uh, The easiest thing to do if you are a perennial loser is to stop trying and to become complacent. And we in the church, I feel like losing, can, we, we have a good way of making this almost seem godly uh, because it is easier to be a martyr than actually fight to make things happen. Complacency can be passed off as contentment. That sounds more godly. Uh, laziness can be thought of having made peace with the situation. Uh, we can say we're just being realists. We can say we're showing humility. We're just not being overly ambitious or proud about these things. And those things can be true and good in many instances. I mean, if we're talking about sports, like, you know, athletes have to learn to lose graciously. It's just part of life. Politicians should do the same. I won't say of whom we're talking here. 
But when it comes to what God has commanded us to do, we are not excused from obeying just because it's difficult. We're not even excused when it's seemingly impossible. And that's where Haggai steps in. Haggai has a message that a demoralized people need to hear. It's a pep talk, yes, but there's more to it. it. It starts with hard words. Haggai exposes the hidden sins that come with losing. He exposes the complacency and really the pride and the laziness of God's people. He exposes that the root cause of the holdup is actually, in the end, it ends up being their selfishness. The problem at its root is not really politics, it's sin. And it's not so much fear as it's complacency. And more than Zechariah, even, I think Haggai is kind of a kick-you-in-the-pants prophet. He doesn't waste a lot of time. He shows it doesn't take 14 chapters to smack you upside the head. And notice first that the smack on the head kind of goes directly to the top. He starts in verse 1. The word is going to Zerubbabel and to Joshua, the leadership, in verse 1. So this message is directly from God through Haggai to Zerubbabel and Joshua on behalf of the people, which means that God has a bone bone to pick with the leadership. All the people are screwing up collectively, but it's up to God's appointed leaders to set a better trend. The buck stops with them. Now, I'll make a very brief and uncomfortable point of application here that this is just as true in the church today, including this one. We have a mission as a church is a pretty comprehensive document on the, on the stand back there, right? But if we don't get there, I can't point fingers at you all if we fail in our missions. It, it comes down to me. It comes down to the session. Like, God will have a bone to pick with us up here because leaders are responsible for leading. So that's a cautionary tale for us. I won't dwell on that. Let's move on. Um, now, I, I, I'm going to say that it's not so much that Zerubbabel and Joshua, they're not bad guys. They, they're... They have bravely led this expedition, right? They've taken a lot of risks, and and they've been doing this since the reign of Cyrus. They've faced down a lot of opposition early on. They reinstituted the worship. They had made a very good start to this thing. But right now, nothing's happening, and they're still in charge, and the work's not getting done. So God sends Haggai to have it out with them. Now, what does God have to say for a start in verse 2? It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. It's usually impolite to address any group as you people, uh, but God's allowed to do that. That's okay. Um, Who are these people? Well, he he means the Jews, right? These exiles who've returned, and they returned why? They returned for the express purpose of rebuilding the temple. And God opens by painting a picture of the attitude of his people. He doesn't accuse them of rebellion He doesn't accuse them of gross immorality. He says that they've decided that when it comes to rebuilding the temple, God's house, now's just not the time. The conditions aren't quite right. We've been providentially hindered. We need to be patient and wait on the Lord. And to be fair, that doesn't sound crazy. After all, Artaxerxes had explicitly told them to stop, right? So that sounds like common sense. It almost sounds pious. We understand where they're coming from. But here's the thing. Artaxerxes had stopped the work. That's true. But we are now two years into the reign of Darius. Now, I'm going to say that the timeline of this story is a little bit confusing, and it depends on which commentator you're reading, what order these kings are coming, because the names get mixed up. Um, 
there is some confusion there. Scholars differ on whether the Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes who stopped the work was actually Cambyses. It depends. It's not important right now. You don't need to understand all of Persian history to understand the story and what God is trying to teach you right now. I want you to just observe that the king who ordered the work stoppage has been dead for years now. And yet God's people are still sitting around doing nothing, waiting for some miracle to just happen. They've lost all the momentum and they don't know how to get restarted. In fact, they don't even seem interested. They've rationalized the mission away out of existence. It's just not time right now. God just hasn't opened the door. And apparently God doesn't like that attitude. Nobody is saying that the work stoppage was fair in the first place. Nobody blames Zerubbabel and Joshua for what happened. Uh, the Jews were victims of a political conspiracy. But being a victim does not mean that you're sinless. You're still responsible for how you deal with the attacks and with the setbacks. The sins of others does not ex excuse the sin in you, in other words. And so God proceeds to demonstrate how subtle sins have sort of slipped into the situation here in verse 4. The word of the Lord comes by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, this might sound confusing because some of us remember cheap wood paneling. It's still available, I think, but you know, I, I like to think we survived the paneled house craze of the 70s. Most of you know what I mean, the, the thin plywood with the fake wood veneer, right? The, the four by eight sheets. When we lived in Belfont, I, I, that, that stupid house is frequently an illustration in my sermons, I know, but the, the entire house was basically held together with those panels. <laughs> And a lot of the houses we looked at in Allentown had paneled basements like that. Uh, some of us still have it in places. Most of us are dreaming of when we can replace it, right? And when I was a kid, we had a paneled laundry room. It was good enough for that, right? Uh, and it matched the faux wood top of the gas dryer, and it also matched most of the station wagons of that era. <laughs> this was not the epitome of class, uh, but that's not what Haggai is talking about. Uh, this is what passed for true luxury in these days. Uh, it's not just stone walls with some whitewash schlepped on it, right? This is not cheap, thin plywood. They're talking about legitimate cedar panels is what this would probably be. Cedar's nice. That's the kind of wood that not only looks nice, it also smells good. I like cedar. And so there's a big difference between that and my old laundry room growing up. This is, this is more like a fancy ski lodge kind of look. And again, this would be quality imported wood from Lebanon. Because Israel, again, is not known for its trees. Now you may say, wait a minute. I remember that that was one of the main components in the temple construction. That the initial holdup when they first got there, the first order of business was they bartered for cedar from Lebanon, and then they waited for the lumber to get delivered. That's the one of the primary building supplies that they needed. But if temple construction was halted, I'm willing to bet that that wood was left sitting out to rot and warp. And I start to suspect that these guys figured, well, why let it go to waste? And maybe they bought it. And so the remaining lumber that was supposed to be used in the temple rebuild is now lining the walls and ceilings of some comfy homes of the Jewish returnees. 
I think that it's very likely that the temple's loss has been their gain. Once again, the work stoppage was not their fault, but you can see how a, a, a perverse incentive is being developed here. If delaying this project benefits me and makes me more comfortable, then why would I have much incentive to get started again? Because now I have the best of both worlds. I can play the victim card because we never got to finish the temple, uh, but I can also get to live in luxury while I complain about it. And since God's house is on pause, I can focus on building my house. And we can feel pious in the process, but God can see through this stuff. He's not fooled by it. And so he invites his people to conduct an exercise in self-reflection in verses 5 and 6. He says, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. A wise man, Mick Jagger, once said, I can't get no satisfaction. God says the same is true for us. Verse 6 is a picture of the futility of life. And boy, does it ring true. Living for yourself is not satisfying. How many of you can testify to that? that the harder you try, the less satisfied you are. How many of you know from experience what a prophet Mick Jagger was? Paul talks in Romans 8 about the entire creation being subjected to futility, that the curse of living in a fallen world is that we can't get no satisfaction. Nothing works right, and the harder we try, the more frustrated we become. And when we live for our own pleasure and our own security and our own happiness, we are not only selfish, we are doomed to failure. That's a really hard word for us as Americans, isn't it? Because we have all been catechized since our youth and we know that it is our right to pursue what? Happiness. But as a rule, we fail. Oh, sure, we, we get glimmers of pleasure here and there, but in the end, it mostly feels empty. That's what God's getting at. That's what he's talking about. You can sow much, but the return will be disappointing, meaning your investments and your work are never as fruitful as you want them to be. You can eat to your heart's content, but you'll never be completely satisfied. I have lived this occasionally because I like to eat. I especially like eating out. And I think to myself, if I had all the money in the world, we'd never cook. Why bother? But on those rare occasions when I have let loose and we eat out like every day for a few days or whatever, like, you know, on, on vacation or something like that, like I find that by the end it's hard to be content. Because there's always one more restaurant to try. There's one more thing to sample. And it turns out I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I don't even have enough appetite or stomach space to experience everything, which means I'll never really be satisfied. The same goes for drink. Life is too short to drink cheap beer. This is true, and it applies to wine, it applies to coffee, it applies to tea, but you'll never be able to try everything. As far as clothes, it's hard to imagine 
here we are in July, blasting the air. I'm still sweating up here. Like, it's, it's hard for me to, you know, wrap my head around, like, you know, well, nobody's warm. Like, all right, that's kind of weird. Um, but I'll tell you what, connected to that, just clothing in general. I own, I must own probably 40 T-shirts, wouldn't you say, babe? Roughly? Yeah. Every time I go to General Assembly every year, I bring home more. Because um, they're free. And, and you know what? I don't even like most of them. <laughs> a lot of them are polyester. They make you sweat more. The designs are stupid. And they advertise like ministries I've never even heard of. We don't support. And I don't even like people. Oh, where's that? I, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know what they do. Um, <laughs> And so there are mornings where I will debate what to wear. What is the perfect T-shirt for a Wednesday when I'm having lunch with fellow pastors? And this is like a serious question I have to ask myself. What's the appropriate? Out of these 40, 45 shirts, which of them is appropriate for today? And what this points to is that most of us own too much crap. And a lot of it happens to be clothing. That's why the Salvation Army is loaded with the stuff. Are we satisfied with our wardrobes? And boy, he talks about spending with the wages, right? He talks about putting your wages in a pocket full of holes. Georgia patches all the holes in my pockets. It's nice to be married to a seamstress. But my mother used to say that of, of you know, she used to say what God's saying here about her sons. Uh, for years, I was paid in cash, and it burns a proverbial hole in your pocket very quickly. Uh, I can be good at spending, especially on a vacation. But at the end of a week, after we've eaten and drank and bought more T-shirts, and my wallet is now significantly lighter, what do I have to show for it? Am I satisfied? And don't get me wrong, I, you know, again, I'm glad I was on vacation down at Seaside Home. But what's best about that vacation is what was invested in God's house in the process. So what I'll reflect back on is the relationships with the ladies that I pastored all week and the time that I spent with my wife and with my kids and with my mom and the time that I spent praying on the beach in the early morning preparing messages. There is pleasure to be found in work, and in food, and in drink, and in clothing, and in money. But if that's all there is to it, you'll never be satisfied. If you live for your own pleasure and comfort, you'll never have enough. I think it was Rockefeller who was once asked how much money is enough, and he said something to the effect of just a little more. And that's how we'll always feel. Our appetites will never say enough. So God is calling out his people for losing sight of why they're here. They have forgotten their purpose. They're getting fat, but they're not happy. And then he says, let me tell you why. Allow me to explain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce and I have called for a drought on the land 
and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Do you know why living for yourself feels so futile? Because God makes it so. He blows it away. And he tells you exactly why. It's because his house is in ruins. Y'all are busy building your own kingdoms. Mine looks like a heap of rubble. You're all busy, but with the wrong things. And so the Lord says, I blew it away. I called for a drought. The heavens and the earth withhold their blessings at my command. I have ordered a drought on the land and even on man and on beast. All of your label is under a drought on my orders. What's the solution? It's simple. Build my house. Seek my pleasure, says the Lord. Don't even worry about importing more fancy cedar for the project. What does he say? He says, go into the hills. Grab whatever you can find, essentially. It doesn't have to look like the Ritz-Carlton. I'm not asking you to build Notre Dame. Just build the thing that I may be glorified. God's people had forgotten what they were here for. And this happens because the return from exile starts to, I think they start to primarily think it's about them. But the kingdom's not about them, and it's not about us. It's never primarily about us. The glory is real, and we get to even share in it a little bit, but we are not the source of that glory. We're not the main characters in the drama. We're here for God's glory, not our comfort. The exiles weren't sent home to pursue happiness. This is not about the American dream. And like I said, that's a tough pill for some of us. I mean, we, we know it's the slogan for Pennsylvania. They changed it. If you drive in over the Jersey Bridge, what does it say? Welcome to Pennsylvania. Pursue your happiness. It's deep in our blood. But it's not new to us. Because that's the same problem that the Jews in Ezra 5 had. They're too busy pursuing their own happiness to build the temple. They're pursuing their pleasure instead of God's. And I think that guilt plays into this as well. I said before that, you know, when we talked about the false accusations they were dealing with, they weren't entirely false. They are rebellious people. Uh, it wasn't entirely unfair. And I think that sometimes a heavy sense of guilt can actually drive complacency. And I think it can drive more sin because we start to think, well, what's the difference? What right do I have to serve God in that way? How can that be my job to build the temple? And I think this should be a convicting passage for us. Because maybe you've wondered why the kingdom isn't growing in the way and at the speed that you think it should. And I think about that because I know there is endless kingdom work that needs done in Allentown and to the north of us. Uh, we live in many ways. I, I was at a lunch yesterday with a guy who's possibly going to end up pastoring here. And he said, well, how would you describe this area? And I said, I think it's like a spiritual wasteland in some ways. There's certainly not a lot of Reformed teaching, and when you go north, there's even less and less. Um, I am constantly thinking about that. I think about our vision and mission as a church. I think about various tactics. I think about our actual physical building. 
Uh, I especially think about this desire we have to reach the city. And I will frequently wonder why the kingdom building takes so long. And I think of all the problems, and I think of all the challenges. And it's easy for me to point to all the externalities that keep my hands tied and keep our hands tied. We, we just don't have the money. We just don't have the energy. We just don't have the resources. We just don't have the focus that we need. And I can easily sit around lamenting over a lack of progress. And I can do that verbally with a lot of people. And you know what? Most people don't blame me. If I talk to brothers from Presbytery or something, like they don't blame me for the complaints because ministry can be hard. It's not like it's all just my imagination. And you know what's easier than doing ministry and focusing on the mission? Complaining about it. Checking out. Griping about the problems and all the stuff that makes things seem impossible. Uh, Eating, enjoying meals, uh, drinking, working on my house. uh, Lots of things that are good in and of themselves. But if I'm honest, sometimes on my priority list, the kingdom is often a step below (laughs) fixing my my house, physically or literally, metaphorically. But even, even literally, gardening can become a higher priority than shepherding, in my mind. I can fill my life with all the other stuff, and I can keep very busy building my own house. I somehow tell myself and expect that each purchase I make, each meal I eat, each night out with my wife, each vacation I go on, each project I complete, every one of these, I think, at some level will fulfill me. And you know what? It doesn't work. Not only because I often fail in my projects, but even when I do well, it doesn't actually fulfill me. It's never enough. I'm never satisfied. I'm like the Jews in verse 9 sometimes. I am always busy, and I look for much, but it comes to little. Now, do I have some legitimate hardships and problems? Sure. Is every complaint unfair or inaccurate? No. But does that excuse me from doing what I need to do? Does the sin of others excuse my sin? The danger for me is falling into the trap of saying that the time has not yet come to rebuild and then secretly being kind of relieved. I, I saw a meme recently, and it was, it was I think it was like, you know, it's the pictures like, you know, the, uh, the control room after a successful landing on the moon, everybody's hugging and everything. It's like that moment when I make a phone call and the person doesn't answer. Like I called them, but I didn't really want to talk to them. And so it's like you're relieved that, you know, you're now off the hook kind of thing. We can be like that with kingdom work. Maybe some of you can relate, uh, because I don't think this is limited to just full-time ministry. I think just being a church member can be exhausting, too. Uh, Church can feel impossible sometimes. (laughs) Maybe some of you are just as frustrated and discouraged as I am sometimes. And when we are discouraged about the kingdom, the number one temptation will be to focus and build on our, our own house. We take refuge in our idols, and then we wonder why it's not working. But in the end, we know why these things give no pleasure. It's because God is merciful. It's because he won't let you be satisfied with stuff. He doesn't want you to find fulfillment 
in what is passing away. He will not let you settle for anything less than him. He looks at your idols and all the stuff that we fill our lives with, and he says they'd give you a lot more pleasure if you stopped trying so hard, got your priorities straight, and built my house, prioritized my pleasure, prioritized my glory. In other words, what does Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom and all other stuff will be added. We can't get it backwards. This entire passage in Haggai is basically what Jesus is echoing in Matthew chapter 6. When he says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And beloved, that's not a health and wealth gospel thing. This is Jesus saying that he'll take care of the stuff that you're striving for. If we will seek and prioritize the kingdom first, then everything else is gravy. If our passion is for his pleasure and glory, then everything else in life will feel much less futile. Now, I don't know in what specific ways you all are tempted to build your own house. I don't know what keeps you too busy to focus on the kingdom I can only say that I see this in my own life. I'm not here to do the Holy Spirit's job and pry into those things right up here. But he might be using this passage to poke you in some uncomfortable ways. Haggai is saying that frustration and disappointment can often lead to self-pity and complacency, settling and laziness and selfishness. And those are the consolation prizes and idols that we cling to when things seem impossible. And if you feel convicted... I know it's easy to get defensive, but I want to say thankfully that that's not the response of God's people in this book. I'm going to read this with little commentary. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, quote, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. I'll look more at that next week, but the proper response to conviction is to fear the Lord. And then God says, don't worry, I'm with you. And then he stirs up the spirit of his people. God restores his people. God rebuilds his people before he worries about the physical building. He cares less about the lumber than he cares about your heart. And that's the gospel, isn't it? That God, through his son, is reconciling and rebuilding a people for himself. Jesus didn't come and die for a building. He came and died for you, his people. And that's the core of Haggai's preaching. It's not primarily about the building. It's about the people reclaiming them. Conviction leading to repentance and restoration and a stirring. Maybe some of you need that wake-up call this morning. Maybe you've been busying yourself with building your own house, but God's goal is to restore you and renew your sense of purpose 
and your sense of mission. So let conviction drive you to the throne of grace. And he will be with you. And he will stir you up. This is how kingdom renewal happens. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the prophets that you sent to speak to your people in appointed times and various and sundry ways. Lord, we thank you for this book of Haggai, Lord, and we thank you for the wake-up call that it is and that it was for your people then, Lord, but is for us now. Lord, there are countless ways, even when our external actions say otherwise, Lord, where even in our minds we are building our own houses. Self-pitying and, and focusing on our own comforts. Lord, help us to see where that is true. I pray that you would convict us where it's appropriate, and I pray that you would restore us as your people. Lord, that you would help us to see these things, Lord, that we would be penitent. Convict us, Lord, so that we learn anew to fear you and help us to find peace in, the, in, in your promise that you will be with us. And we pray that you would stir us back up, stir up the spirit within us. Teach us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And that ultimately you will add all the other things, Lord, if we would stop worrying about them. Teach us to live and walk that way as a church, as individuals. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom? 